Well, hello, everyone. Uh, you'll notice that it is not Monday. <laughs> uh, so Ask Science Mike is, is late, and there's no theme song. What's going on? Well, here's what's going on. I've been traveling a lot. I got back. I got busy working on some episodes of the Liturgist podcast and some projects for the Liturgists. And uh, Ask Science Mike got bumped a couple of days, which was fine. I was going to catch up. And then my daughter got sick with the stomach flu, and I lost a lot of time there. So... Uh, instead, we're gonna we're gonna shift a little bit, and we're going to talk about something that has been on my mind, and that's the relationship between social media and mental health. And uh, when I er, late last year asked you what you thought about the podcast and what you would think about changing the format, what I got overwhelmingly was that people like the format as it is, uh, that you like the mixture of live episodes and studio episodes. Uh, but that you'd like me to also do episodes sometimes where I just talk about what I'm thinking about or books I'm reading. Um, and so this episode is going to be that. Out of necessity, because the normal studio episode this week is full of questions which are extremely difficult to answer. <laughs> and that uh, I've probably spent double the amount of research I spend in a normal studio episode. And I'm still nowhere near happy with my answers to those questions. So instead, we're going to talk about something that I hope is deeply meaningful and resonant in your life today. And that's social media. I mean, have you noticed that we're a bit obsessed with social media? Uh, and and let's, let's be clear right off the bat. I understand that poo-pooing social media is very common. What I'm about to say, I don't mean from a, a Luddite perspective or a fear of technology. I also want to say that I understand you know, social media is incredibly empowering. Uh, social media helps people organize, literally organize revolutions. Uh, it's helped us connect. Th- this audience I care so much about, this group of people who are going through faith transition, uh, many of us would, would not be able to connect with people in our face-to-face real-life communities for fear of rejection. And social media and digital media allows these connections to form. So all of what I'm about to say is in conjunction with the understanding that, of course, there are tremendous benefits to digital and social media. Of course, people who are homebound or who are on the autism spectrum or who in some way find it stressful or dehumanizing to interact with people in normal face-to-face contexts are empowered by social media. I'm not in this episode saying that social media is bad or evil or wrong or should be avoided. What I'm talking about is some disturbing research, discouraging and disturbing research about social media and mental health. And um, I've been thinking about this for a while. I'm going to link to a piece in The Atlantic that I think summarizes the problem very well. Uh, That includes some research um, on things like the Instagram effect. So if you're on Instagram, you look on Instagram, what you usually see are pictures of people having their best life, living their best life, beautiful locations, uh, nights out with friends. Uh, But we understand statistically that people are spending more and more time alone and more and more time home, especially millennials and post-millennials, the two youngest generations in the United States. And people are spending more time at home and yet they look on their phone and they see what their friends exploring the world. They see their friends going to parties and uh, that tells their brain that they're weird 
and they're alone and everyone else is having a good time. And um, it's not good. What we're understanding, though, is is these these machines, these algorithms have been designed to share information with us. And the information they want to share is whatever captures the most attention. And smiling faces and people having a good time capture attention, as do things that make us very angry. And suddenly social media makes sense. Anything that stimulates your emotional brain and captures your attention, gets you to look longer, to share, to like, to comment, uh, it trains a machine to show it to you more. Which means, even if you don't go out very much, when you do, you what? You post your best life on Instagram, and then all of your friends who are home alone enter this cycle of loneliness. What does that look like? Well, let's talk about some long-term behavioral trends in the data. In 2015, 56% of high school seniors went on one or more dates. Now that's compared to 85% in boomers in Generation X. So this is a huge, huge shift in human behavior. High school seniors are dating less. Now that has led to a teen birth rate that's at an all-time low, and high school sexual activity is down 40%. Many people would say that that is good. Not everyone, but many people would say that is an encouraging bit of data. Um, Another thing that's kind of interesting and related to this research Millennials and post-millennials wait longer to get driver's licenses than previous generations did, which is driven by anxiety. So what we are finding is that anxiety is skyrocketing among millennials and post-millennials as they are spending more time on social media. And here's a quote from uh, Jean Twinge, which I will share her piece in The Atlantic on the show notes this week. All screen activities are linked to less happiness, and all non-screen activities are linked to more happiness. Eighth graders who spend 10 or more hours a week on social media are 56% more likely to say that they are unhappy than those who devote less time to social media. And related to that, depression in America is at an all-time high, and the younger you are, the more likely you are to be depressed. Young people are the most depressed youth we have on record. And heavy social media use increases depression risks by 27%. And um, that's shocking. Heavy smartphone and tablet users are 35% more likely to have suicidal ideation. So the data is clear. Americans, especially millennials and post-millennials, of which there are many of you listening to me right now, are in a digitally induced mental health crisis. Again, I say this knowing that there are many wonderful things about social media, but what we are finding in social science and in psychology is that many more people experience overall negative mental health consequences from social media use than there are people who experience overall positive, right? Everyone experienced some mix of positive and negatives. For most people, the negatives are outweighing the positive. Research is increasingly clear on this. So I wrote a Twitter thread and a Facebook post that explores that, and it's gone bananas. (laughs) So I'll link that in the show notes as well. Uh, But I thought we would just go through that together because 
as I've reviewed this research and as I've looked at what researchers are saying about screen time and about social media, I have tried to create mitigating strategies in my own life that are evidence-based. And I thought I would share them with you, some ways to be healthier in our approach of social media. This is not about saying you have to abstain from social media. This is trying to mitigate those negative impacts on mental health associated with high social media use. Uh, So here's some things that I have found helpful. First, I begin by understanding that social media companies have a financial incentive to create products and services that make me act in a compulsive way. That this is their financial model. Facebook makes money when I get a compulsion to respond to the on my phone. They make, they literally make money. They've become one of the world's most valuable companies monetizing compulsive behavior on smartphones and tablets. So if I understand that, it means that Facebook and I have different goals for my use of Facebook. Facebook wants as much of my attention as they can get to sell as many ads as possible. What do I want from Facebook? I want to see my friends on vacation. I want to connect with family members on the other side of a continent. I want to connect with all of you who engage my work because you care about science or spirituality or social justice or some combination of those things. So how can I make Facebook do the job I want it to do without being exploited as a product that they sell advertisers? Well, first of all, notifications are a big problem. Research is telling us that the kind of uh -uh alert our phone gives us creates a dopamine-fueled compulsive behavior loop. Uh, Dopamine does many things, frankly. It's a neurotransmitter. We don't know all of what dopamine was does, but we know one thing that it's responsible for is creating craving. And the potential reward of the uh, uh, vibration in your smartphone is is actually more addicting than a guaranteed reward. Because you might look at your phone and it could be a bill, it could be, you know, a text, uh, a spam text. There's no telling, but it could be that someone likes something you posted, and that's that's validation for a social mammal. So I've decided it's in my best interest to disable all notifications from every social media program and to be intentional about how often and when I check in on social media. If you look at my Facebook page and my Twitter feed, I tend to get on for a few minutes at a time, read and post, and then go away. So I've turned off all notifications on my smartphone, all Facebook, all Twitter, all Instagram, You know, even if you text me, I don't get notified because I'm trying to break this behavioral loop in my life that corporations have created for profit. So notifications off. I take it a little further. Uh, I put my phone to bed. (laughs) So uh, as we get into late evening, my phone goes and it sits on the nightstand and I'm done with it. When I get up in the morning, I leave it there until after breakfast. So I have phone-free time with my family. Now, you don't have to do that. But I, I, I would say that if you're interested in breaking the dopamine compulsion loop that you likely experience with your smartphone, 
turning off notifications is a good start. Another thing, social media algorithms, the machine learning, has discovered that outrage holds attention better than almost any other emotion. So when I feel outraged by something I see on social media, I take a step back and I process. And I think deeply. Now there's plenty that I could see on social media that is genuinely worthy of outrage. But I also understand that chronic moral outrage or an addiction to moral outrage or a craving for moral outrage, which is a very gratifying emotion, does not actually help me be a better activist or advocate in the world. And so I tend to view with caution social media content that makes me outraged. Also, I understand that social media gives me a very limited view of people. We are social mammals and our brains uh, below our consciousness, below our neocortex, are constantly evaluating the facial expressions and the body language of people we talk to. That gives us a rich, full picture of another person's lived experience that vanishes when people are turned into pictures and text. Even if we see someone speaking in video form online, the fact that they don't respond to our emotional cues dehumanizes them and dehumanizes us. And it's much more amplified in text-based communication. So I understand that when people are dehumanized on social media, it means conflicts are very explosive and volatile. We will say things on social media we would never say to someone's face in person. So I work to mitigate this tendency towards explosive uh, conflict by being intentional about being kind to others when I respond. I, I, as often as I can, work to de-escalate conflict. Now, I'm a person, and sometimes my little mammal brain gets worried that my reputation will be damaged or my social standing will be damaged if I don't engage in a conversation where I'm being um, threatened or I'm being uh, and I don't mean threatened like I'm going to get you. I mean like my, my social standing is threatened. Someone's saying I'm not a good person. So what I've learned to do there is walk away or establish boundaries as necessary. Uh, we have a tendency to dig in, to defend, to fight to the death, to want to win in every online conversation. But research is pretty clear that people aren't terribly persuaded by those types of encounters on social media. Although one-to-one conversations are incredibly persuasive in person, they're not particularly motivating in digital settings. So boundaries and walking away to process before returning or walking away entirely are all valid. That also means conflict with people that I actually know is, is better had outside social media than on social media. If I find myself in conflict with a family member, It's better to call them or meet them to resolve the conflict than to continue to snipe each other in Facebook comments or tweets. And on the other hand, people we don't know at all, strangers, or people we only know online, those opinions or criticisms should be held very loosely, even if the criticisms have merit or deserve further examination or introspection. Social media tends to make us obsessed with the thoughts of people we don't know about us. 
like total strangers and we're 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 obsessed with what they think while ignoring people in our own homes and workplaces and i don't think that's healthy okay uh okay third third point on my big chart here um is that i've noticed people tend to at least people with a justice orientation tend to seek out people of other ethnicities or sexual orientations or gender identities, or political affiliations, or ability levels. So just other points of identity on social media. And that's good, and that's helpful, but that's no replacement for real-life relationships with people who are different than you are. Surveys and data tell us that if you're white, it's very, very likely that your social web is extremely white. And so, as good as it is to seek out information and advocacy on social media, it is also very healthy to seek out those sorts of relationships in real life. You may find them more instructive and that they hold you to a greater degree of accountability. Fourth, whenever I feel lonely or depressed or anxious or isolated, I understand Research is saying social media often deepens those feelings, even if it momentarily alleviates them. Back to that Instagram effect of seeing happy faces when we feel alone. Even if all of our friends feel the same way, we don't know that because machine learning algorithms, they don't sell attention by promoting posts where people are vulnerable about their loneliness. They get attention by showing smiling faces in beautiful locations. So, I understand that social media offers me a skewed perspective on what other people's lives are like. I understand that what I'm seeing is not the real life of my friends or my family. And so while social media is extraordinarily helpful, at keeping a high-level view of what may be happening in the lives of others. It's an important discipline for me to maintain in-person contact and connections with my friends and with my family. Now, I'm making some assumptions. I am able-bodied, although I have a brain injury and get somewhat overwhelmed and uh, mid-size or large group settings, I, I still have a, a, a you know, a, a, a solid capacity to read and understand the feelings of others in a given environment. But in general, for most people, increasing the amount of in-person, face-to-face interaction you have as a ratio of your interactions will be better for your mental health. Social media isn't bad. Social media is, in fact, very valuable. It offers marginalized people a powerful megaphone, and it allows isolated people and homebound people the opportunity to connect with others like them. For people going through faith transitions, you can be honest about your struggles without fear of reprisal from people in your religious community who may not understand what you've been thinking about lately. But it's critical that we remember social media platforms are not created out of a sense of altruism or activism or public service. These platforms were all created with a profit motive 
And that's not bad, but it does mean through the very structure of economic incentives that a winning business strategy is to be exploitive of people's social needs and desires. And in order to maintain our mental health as individuals and as a society, we must start to actively manage our relationships with social media. We should control the terms of our relationships with the Facebooks and Twitters of the world and not the other way around. Otherwise, this mental health crisis will continue in America and in Europe and all across the world as we crave a connection with others that we fulfill only superficially with digital avatars and text-based communication. If you'd like to see this written out, And somewhat summarized, you can go to AskScienceMike.com where I will link to my Facebook page. The irony of talking about limiting social media and sending you to social media is not lost on me. But again, I'm not saying social media should go away. I'm saying we should foster a healthier relationship with social media and keep it as a single part of our overall view of our social connections with others, and ideally a smaller part than in-person connections and voice-to-voice conversations. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll talk to you next week.